The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 19 this morning. The word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and caught in a thicket by its horns was a ram. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the letter of James, 
James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 26 this morning. The word of our God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poor, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Please keep your place here in James. This will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. What are good works? The Bible gives us two key markers to know what good works are. First, they must be done in response to something that God has said, to a promise or a command that he has explicitly given to us. And secondly, good works must be done in faith. Now, naturally enough, those two things go together. Uh, You can only have faith in something that God has said. If I just pursue uh, the desires of my own imagination and I create things like pilgrimages to wherever, to Rome or to some shrine or something, uh, that's not faith. That's me creating a religion. Faith requires me to be responding to something that God has commanded or promised and to be doing that in faith, that is, trusting God while I'm doing it. Here's a straightforward way to think about good works. Good works are simply faith, that is, genuine faith, going public. Let me say that again. Good works are simply faith going public. In any circumstances when you're, where you're living, if you're trusting God in that circumstance, it's going to change the way you live. And the way that you are living by trusting God is what God calls good works. Uh, that really should be encouraging to you for a number of reasons. First of all, it means you don't have to be particularly studious or particularly smart, although many of you are, but you don't need to be 
in order to do good works. All you need to do is trust God. If you're trusting God, your life will change in a way that God calls good works. Second, when you trust in the Lord, your heavenly Father really is pleased with the way that you're living. I make this point because I've discovered that even in the Reformed world, sometimes people so emphasize our brokenness and our sinfulness that we can miss the fact that God is pleased with us. See, Christ has covered over the imperfections of your works. They're never perfect in themselves. But in Christ, they are received by God as perfect. And when you are trusting him and living for his glory, God is pleased with you. That requires faith. For as the author of Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In this morning's passage, James is going to continue to talk about genuine faith. Uh, That's been his theme for quite some time here. But he's going to talk about genuine faith as it connects to our works. And that's why we have to have both ideas in mind. And if you understand that good works are simply genuine faith going public, it will make a lot more sense to you. Uh, We're going to look at this portion of God's word under five headings. First, claiming to have faith never saved anyone. Second, faith without works is dead. Third, saving faith and good works are inseparable. Fourth, don't rest in a demonic faith. And fifth, Paul and James are friends. Let me give those to you again. First, Claiming to have faith never saved anyone. Second, faith without works is dead. Third, saving faith and good works are inseparable. Fourth, don't rest in a demonic faith. And fifth, Paul and James are friends. Now don't panic about if you didn't get all those written down. What you're going to find out is uh, they actually all belong together as just really one big idea seen from different angles. James begins with an obvious but an important truth. Claiming to have faith never saved anyone. Look at verse 14 with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's important to see that James is not talking about genuine faith. He is talking about someone's claim to have faith. If someone says that he has faith, if someone claims that he has faith, right? That, that's the idea here. James is taking aim at a mere claim to faith, one that doesn't change the way that a person lives. James asks, can that faith, we might better say that sort of faith, save him? Now, astonishingly, many people in our own day, and I've seen this throughout evangelical churches, answer that question by saying yes. Uh, they might not say it yes while they're reading this passage, but they say yes to that, uh, that question all the time. Uh, what they'll say is, you know, if you were at an evangelistic meeting and you raised your hand, or you walked an aisle, you ought to trust in that. 
Never forget the fact that you raised your hand. You walked the aisle. You are saved because you did that. Now, I want to be clear. It is a totally appropriate thing for us to ask people to commit to Christ and to commit to Christ publicly. That's not the problem. The problem is, is the people that walked the aisle were being told to have faith in their faith. And biblical faith is not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the living God. Uh, this can get so callous. Um, I once heard a very famous professor uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a book on this subject called Absolutely Free. Uh, I heard him say that if a person uh, comes into an evangelistic meeting and he gets the altar call and he walks down the aisle, right, signs the card, and then he turns around and walks out the back door of the church, and as he's walking out, he goes, that's the dumbest thing I've ever done. And he never darkens the door of a church again. That man is saved, according to this professor. Beloved, that is trusting a claim to faith. Actually, in this case, he's not even continuing to claim it. He's trusting in a decision that was made. I want you to realize that James is saying the exact opposite. When he says, can that sort of faith save someone? The rhetorical question is an answer with an emphatic no. No, a mere claim to faith does not save anyone. Now, if you've been with us, you realize this is not a new theme in James. Nor is this a novel idea that's unique to James. This is taught all throughout the Bible. Uh, You'll recall that James ended the first chapter like this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James doesn't go, you know, it's slightly off. Could use a little bit of improvement. He's saying, your claim to faith doesn't change the way you live, doesn't change your heart because the Spirit of God is growing in you. That religion is worthless before God. Genuine faith takes the Lord at his word. Therefore, genuine faith yields obedience to the Lord's commands, trembles at his threatenings, and embraces the promises of God for this life and for that which is to come. Genuine faith changes the way that we think, and therefore it necessarily changes the way that we live. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and Jesus all taught this. And by the way, so does the Apostle Paul. Not just James. A superficial claim to faith, which is a faith in faith rather than faith in God, will never save anyone. As Jesus warns us, on the day of judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord, and they will claim all manner of religious activity. And they will claim they did it in Jesus' name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And here's the important part of this warning for you. Does Jesus say this is going to be for a tiny, I mean, really a minuscule group of hypocrites? That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, many will come to me on that day. Now, they'll have some veneer of religion. They would have told other people that they were believers. They even use this term, which is a, a, the repetition of Lord, which is a use of endearment, going, Lord, you know, you know us, right? 
And Jesus is saying, no, if you don't actually trust me, and if you trust me, it's going to change the way you live, um, I'm going to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. So James asks, can that sort of faith save him? Beloved, can that sort of faith save you? And the answer of the whole Bible is an emphatic no. Claiming to have faith never saves anyone. To drive this point home, um, James gives us a completely self-evident illustration. Nobody would have been tripped up by this illustration. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to you, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? The royal law, according to James, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's one of the two main ways of summing up the commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if someone comes to you, a brother or sister in Christ, they come to your door and, and, and they don't even have their daily food and they're, they're freezing because they don't have a, a, a warm coat to wear, and you just kind of brush them off with, you know, oh, you know, I, I mean well. Be warmed, be filled. That's empty words. That's mocking words. That isn't love. And James is saying faith is exactly the same thing. If you have a claim to faith that doesn't actually change the way that you live, it's just empty, that is vain words. True love acts. True faith acts too. Please notice, though, the type of math that James is using. James is not saying that faith plus works produces life. It's important for you to see that. James is not saying that faith plus works produces life. James is saying a living faith always produces good fruit. So the lack of good fruit demonstrates that there is a lack of living faith. Uh, it's this so-called faith that doesn't produce works, which is dead. Right? Keep that math right in your, in your minds. It's simple math, but it's vital to your theology. Uh, behind this teaching stands the well-known words of Christ, that we can know that a tree is a good fruit tree if it produces good fruit. What exactly is the relationship between a good tree and the good fruit that it produces? That's my question for you. What's the relationship between a good fruit tree and the fruit that it produces? And there are two key things to, get, uh, to grasp. First, the good fruit does not produce the good tree. That's simple, but it's really important to apply to your Christian life. The good fruit does not produce the good tree. The tree is good before it ever gives any fruit forward. In the same way in the Christian life, your good works do not make you a Christian. If God changes your heart and causes you to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and vitally unites you with Jesus Christ, the true vine by faith, you are, in this sense, the good tree, and therefore you produce 
good fruit. The good fruit does not make the tree good. Second, every good fruit tree, that's James's big point here in this passage, every good tree, in fact, does produce good fruit. If the tree never produces good fruit, it is a bad fruit tree. In the same way, everyone who truly trusts Jesus Christ is united with him by faith. And if you are united with the true vine by faith, you will produce good fruit. If you are not producing good fruit, you are not united with Christ, and that falsifies your claim to faith. It is not a genuine faith that doesn't change the way that you live to the glory of God. Or as James puts it, that so-called faith, a faith without works, is dead. This is not to say that unless you add good works to your faith, that your faith by itself isn't enough. James is saying that unless your so-called faith produces good works, you don't have genuine faith at all. A claim to faith never saved anyone, and faith without works is dead. Look at verse 18 with me. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, This is a very common rhetorical device in, uh, well, in first century um, Greco-Roman world, so it's all over the New Testament. And so as soon as you hear someone uh, make a, a, a phrase like, um, you might hear, you've heard it said, someone might say, you know they're introducing an error. Right? They're introducing an error that they're about to correct. It's a way of driving home the point. And that's what James is doing here. The error in this case is to think that you can divide faith and good works so that you can have one without having the other. Now, it's important that we distinguish genuine faith from good works. But, but you can't have good works without faith. And whenever you have genuine faith, it always produces good works. And so what you need to see from James here is good works and genuine faith are inseparable, even though we can distinguish them from each other. That's the point of James's response. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith isn't produced by good works, but good works are always produced by faith. Now think for a moment about a really famous chapter in the Bible about faith. Actually, probably the most famous chapter in the Bible about faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is um, filled with people that we hear how faith changed their lives, how it was demonstrated in the way they live, in particular using this expression, by faith. Uh, For example, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Before the Bible tells us that, it says, by faith. Right? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Beloved, by faith is used 18 times just in that chapter. We shouldn't miss the obvious fact that faith changes the way that we live. If it doesn't, it's not the real deal. Just as a claim to faith never saved anyone, and faith without works is dead, the Bible insists that faith and good works are inseparable. You can never have one without the other. Now, I want you to keep in mind that James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians. This is a very early letter. He's writing to Jewish Christians who've been driven out of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in Judea in a fierce persecution against those Jews that came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the reason why that's helpful to remember is that if you keep that in mind, you're going to see verse 19 in one sense is a really jarring thing for him to say. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Why is that so shocking? Well, James is referring to the Shema, the absolutely most central aspect of Judaism. Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Faithful Jews would pray this in the first century at least three times a day. Completely central to them. And James seems to be saying, that's not enough. Now, he's not actually saying that. But he seems to be saying that. Your belief that God is one is not sufficient. And for these Jews, it's shocking because this is the most central aspect of their faith prior to the coming of Christ. Yet it turns out that James is not saying that the faith of the Shema is insufficient. The Shema is fundamentally about exclusive loyalty to the Lord. James is saying you can't reduce trust in the Lord, exclusive loyalty to the Lord, and genuine love to the Lord to a mere nod, a mere assent to propositional truth. Oh yeah, I agree that God happens to be one. Assent to the proposition that there is only one true God merely qualifies you, according to James, to be a demon. Demons all know this truth. There is one God. And James says, and they shudder. Merely assenting to true theological propositions... By the way, that's also true of true theological propositions in the New Testament. Merely assenting to true theological propositions is nothing more than faith in facts. Let's say I happen to agree with God at this point. But see, saving faith is not just faith in facts. It does involve facts. But saving faith is faith in God. It's trusting the Lord in Jesus Christ, that in him you have found a faithful Savior. To put the matter bluntly, James is saying don't have a demonic faith. Right? He's, not, he's not whitewashing this and making it really gentle. He's saying if that's what your faith is, you're just like the demons. You are in serious trouble. That sort of faith, that so, sort of so-called faith, won't save anyone. Now if we actually turn around and listen to the Shema in its original context, remembering of course 
that Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us this, this is his truth, uh, we discover that actually Moses and James completely agree. Although it might be better to say that James agrees with Moses because Moses came so much sooner. Let me read just a few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 for you, and I think you'll pick this up right away. Right? This is, Deuteronomy 6 is not a mere assent to a proposition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Beloved, that is not mere assent. Moses is calling them to faith, to trusting the Lord in a way that will change their life, in a way that will change your life as well. That is what Moses and the prophets mean by faith, because that's what God means by faith. James drives home this point by appealing to two exemplars of the faith, Abraham and Rahab. Not surprisingly, he starts with the father of the faithful. Look at verses 20 through 24 with me. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, now you see the problem. (laughs) At least the challenge for us. I think the challenge for us is obvious. On a superficial reading, it might appear that James and Paul are contradicting one another. One of the problems we have is we tend to think of normal language that we read in the Bible as though it always has these technical definitions. A couple weeks from now in, in adult Sunday school, I'm going to talk about the fact that justification has a broad range of uses in the Bible. It doesn't simply mean that you are being um, declared to be in the right before God based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is a glorious truth. But, for example, when we are told that wisdom is justified by our children, we do not mean that wisdom has Christ's righteousness reckoned to it. Right? This word justification really simply means vindication. We have to ask, what does it mean in each context? At your initial justification, the moment you first believe, it carries that technical definition that we use in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But you have to realize that throughout your life, you're going to continue to be vindicated. In fact, when Christ comes again, you are going to be vindicated again, justified again, in a sense, right? Vindicated openly, as being someone who follows Jesus Christ. So you just got to be a little careful with that. I don't have time to talk about that this morning. Come back in two weeks, adult Sunday school, I'm going to give you a little bit of that. 
But I want to say here that we do not have any contradiction between James and Paul. What I want you to see is that Paul and James are friends. Right? They don't need to be reconciled. They're already on the same team. In fact, the doctrine of justification that Paul was teaching in Romans and Galatians is found all throughout the Bible. It is taught both in the Old Testament and in the t- teaching of Jesus. And likewise, James himself is teaching the very same doctrine. Paul and James are friends, and they are both holding and teaching the same doctrine of salvation. Now, the reason why this can sound so different to us is that um, they're addressing different challenges. If we slow down, however, and look closely at what they are teaching, we are going to see that they completely agree with one another. Paul and James do not need to be reconciled because they are already friends. So let's slow down just a bit and look at how they fit together. First, what is the basis upon which you are going to be vindicated before God? It's about Christ. Who Christ is and what he has done for you is the basis on which you will be justified, you will be vindicated before God. The Bible is completely clear on this point. Your guilt has been reckoned to his account, and he has trampled your guilt into the dust through the cross. His perfect record of righteousness has been reckoned to your account so that God, who is faithful and just, declares you to be in the right. God's verdict on your life in Christ is not merely not guilty. It is righteous. Because you have the, you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but has been given to you entirely as a free gift. Second, how do you come to possess this perfect righteousness from God? The biblical answer is you receive it by faith. By grace, it's God's gift. You simply trust God. He gives it to you. It is entirely God's gracious gift. You do not receive righteousness or establish righteousness 50% is a gift of God in Christ, 50% on your own. 90% as a gift from God in Christ, and 10% on your own. It is entirely Christ's work. This is what the Apostle Paul was so arguing so forcefully for, both in Romans and in Galatians. We don't add to Christ's righteousness through our works. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Here's what we need to see this morning. James completely agrees with Paul on this point. It's just that straightforward. James is not saying that our works add to our faith. James is saying that our good works are evidence that our faith is genuine. But James is insisting, just like Paul... But salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace. It is not something that our good works add to in even the slightest way. As we've already seen, James describes God as the giver of every perfect gift. That includes the gift of salvation. God gives you that gift. You don't work for it. James tells us that regeneration is a new birth by the word of truth and totally an act of God's initiative. Let me say that again. Regeneration is a new birth by the word of truth, 
and totally an act of God's initiative. Listen to chapter 1, verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own sovereign will. Sounds really Calvinistic, doesn't it? Although I could just as easily say it sounds really Lutheran. Uh, Because whether you're a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Southern Baptist, this is what the Bible teaches. God sovereignly and freely of his own will caused you to be born again. It's important in this passage to notice that James refers to two different events in Abraham's life. And those two events are separated by quite a few years. He, he takes them in reverse order. right? But one of the events is from Genesis 15. One of them is from Genesis 22, our old covenant reading. In verse 23 he writes, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Right? That, that's where he's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6, before Abraham had even given birth to Isaac, and many years before he would offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah. Right? Well, what he's saying is, is that when Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The very same argument that Paul is making. I don't know how we could come up with anything different because it's the argument that Moses is making under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul and James completely agree on this point. And as I say, how could they not, since it's plainly what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Moses? Now see, here's the problem we have. You and I cannot look into the human heart. God knows that the tree is a good tree before it starts producing fruit. He knows that you've been born again from the moment he's regenerated you. That he's given you true faith. But I can't see that. And actually, the point that James is trying to make here is we often don't see it very clearly when we look inside ourselves into our own hearts. He's giving us these words so that we will apply them to ourselves. Right? Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. And James isn't saying, okay, go around and look at everyone and look at their fruit and make a determination. He's saying, look at your own life and see whether or not your claimed faith is actually producing the good fruit of the Holy Spirit as you are united with Christ. So in verse 21, James takes us many years into Abraham's future, long after we are told authoritatively that righteousness was reckoned to him, and he takes us to Genesis 22, to the dramatic expression of Abraham's faith on Mount Moriah. Now, the fact that Abraham really did trust the Lord, and that Abraham really was a friend of God, something declared many years earlier, is vindicated by the way that Abraham lives. Think back to the image of a good tree producing good fruit. The good fruit does not produce the good tree. The tree was a good tree before any of the fruit appeared. Abraham had believed the Lord and had been accounted as righteous decades before he offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah. In fact, there have been many examples of the good fruit of Abraham's life. 
But for a number of reasons, uh, James chooses to pick the most dramatic example when he offers up his own son on Mount Moriah. Uh, Lord willing, I hope to fill that out a bit in two weeks as well, why this is a particularly appropriate passage. But the very least we can see is, this is a dramatic illustration that Abraham trusted God, that he was willing to do this. Genuine faith always changes the way that people live, and that good fruit vindicates. Right? That's what justification means. That good fruit vindicates that the faith is the real deal. Then James adds in verse 25, and in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works, vindicated by works. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. How do we know that Rahab's faith was the real deal? She changed her loyalty. Right? She she was no longer loyal to the people of Jericho and to the rulers there. Her loyalty now is with Yahweh and with the people of Israel. And her life showed that change of loyalty. James rounds off the passage by repeating his main point. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now it turns out that the first three points of the sermon are actually all teaching you the very same thing. They're actually from James, but James has one big point. Claiming to have faith never saved anyone. Faith without works is dead. And saving faith and good works are inseparable. They're really just one big idea. Right? They all go together. And the fourth point is really just James grabbing us by the lapels. I mean, it's kind of a jarring thing to say, don't have a demonic faith. Don't, let, don't trust in that. He's grabbing us by the lapels and shaking us and going, this is not a minor matter. Right? Are you with God and the holy angels? Are you with the demons? Do you have real genuine faith? Yet if you were really going to take these words to heart, which is your pastor where I very much pray that you will, you will need to hear them not merely as the words of James. You will need to hear them as the words of God. This is is not some private opinion that James is giving us. And therefore we need to see that the teaching of the Holy Spirit, which is found in this passage, is found all throughout Scripture. If you go home today, and you're harboring doubt, thinking that Paul and James are teaching something different, you're not going to put this into practice in your thinking. We've already seen, in a minor, pointed, pointing way, that James agrees with Paul that salvation is entirely a gift of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. If you aren't sure about that, please see me. I want you to see that James teaches that very thing. But I also want you to see that Paul's teaching the very same thing that James teaches here. That faith without works is dead. That good works are a vital part of the Christian life. And I can only do this in quick summary fashion. Let me give you just a few examples from Paul's own writings. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, right after Paul exalts in the fact that your salvation is entirely God's free gift to you, explicitly saying it's not because you earned it. You didn't work for it, and God says, I kind of owe him this. Right after he says that, he says, it was God's purpose in saving you that you would do good works. Right? Those are inseparable ideas. Or think about Titus 2.14. There Paul describes Christ as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. According to Paul, which of course means according to God, at the very heart of the design of Jesus dying for your sins and redeeming you is that you and I would be zealous for good works. In fact, the transformation of our lives is so important to Paul that after expounding justification by faith alone, in Romans chapter 3 and 4, Paul spends six chapters in Romans. That's Romans 6 to 8 and Romans 12 through 15, talking about our new life in Christ. Now, I want you all to read all six chapters, right? You, you really ought to put it in context. But let me give you just one little snippet from those chapters from Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Where is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled? That's my question for you. Reformed Christians all answer, Christ did it for us. And that's gloriously true. But what I want you to see from God's word here is Christ doesn't simply do it for us. God also does it in us. It's a both end. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the law, I'm sorry, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I've already gone on way too long, so I have to end here. Um, but I've only scratched the surface of how Paul and James agree with each other. I am going to talk about this again in two weeks, but I invite you to speak with me in private. I really want you to see this. This is central to your Christian life. I want you to realize that Paul and James do not need to be reconciled because they are already friends. But of course, the most important thing for you to see this morning, or to know when you leave here this morning, is not that Paul and James are friends. The most important thing for you to know is that you are friends with God. That's absolutely vital. In fact, there's nothing more important for you to do today than to know for certain that you and God are friends. How can you know this? James tells us two steps, they're not complicated. He's actually pretty clear about them. James gives us two steps to know that you are a friend of God. First, James quotes Genesis 15, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Have you done that? Beloved, if you have trusted in God with a true faith, the moment that you did that, You are completely justified before God. And God has adopted you into his family. 
He calls you his own daughter, his own son. And Jesus looks at you and says, you are my friend. If you haven't done that, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ, beloved, why not do that right now? It is easy to do. It's simple to do. And it is the most important step that you will ever take. But second, James says that saving faith is so important that you better make sure you have the real thing. Right? And he's given us all this teaching for us to examine ourselves. Not to examine our neighbor, but for us to examine ourselves. If you are genuinely trusting the Lord, you are going to take him at his word in everything that he says. That is going to change the way that you think, and that is going to change the way that you live. If your life has not been changed by the gospel, then your so-called faith is dead. It isn't the faith that God talks about as saving faith. By God's grace, it's not too late for you. As you go home this afternoon, please don't apply this portion of God's word to the lives of other people. Examine your own life to see whether or not you are producing the good fruit of a genuine faith and a changed heart. And if not, call upon the Lord for his mercy. For everyone who calls upon the Lord shall be saved. Beloved, today is the day to make your calling and your election certain. By God's grace, may it be so. Amen.